I, you know, I put the, the level of risk over the next hundred years at about one in six. Uh, and if I'm even roughly right about that, then humanity couldn't sustain many more centuries with risk levels like this. You're listening to the Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting consciousness and culture, from the individual to society at large. This week, our guest is Toby Ord, a senior researcher at Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute, where he focuses on existential risk. Toby recently released his book, Precipice. Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity, which explores the many threats capable not only of ending human civilization, but even causing our entire species to go extinct. It may sound like an unrealistic concern out of a sci-fi movie, but Toby suggests that humanity has roughly a one in six chance of destroying ourselves within the next century. In this episode, we discuss how Toby arrived at this number and the deeper details of the threats that are facing us with a particular focus on biotech and artificial intelligence, which Toby suggests is the most prominent areas of concern. But let's put aside that doom and gloom for a brief moment to remind you that these kind of conversations meant to prevent such a catastrophe are happening every day in the Singularity Global Community, with more than 30,000 members exploring ways to leverage technology for good. If this is something that you're interested in, follow the links at su.org podcasts to explore your options for membership within the community. And though I typically don't condone it, I believe in your ability to multitask. So while you're signing up, let's go ahead and get started. Everyone, please welcome to the Feedback Loop, Toby Ord. All right. Um, Well, to start then, I would love if you could just tell me how someone comes to write a book about existential risk. What drove you to take on what some might consider maybe a slightly pessimistic or um, quite challenging topic? Well, I've always been interested in the, the big picture questions facing humanity. Uh, so, for example, I spent uh, many years looking at global poverty and global health and trying to work out how, what it is that we could do to improve the lives of, uh, of billions of people in the world um, who are really lacking for the, the basics in life. Uh, and when I first came to Oxford, I met uh, a, a philosopher called Nick Bostrom, and he had just uh, come up with this idea of existential risk, uh, building on the idea of, uh, of extinction risk. And he was thinking about, um, you know, in terms of big picture questions, uh, he was thinking about how uh, the world could end uh, and that this could be one of the most important things anyone could work on. Obviously, it would be important if you, your work could uh, prevent uh, the, the end of humanity. Uh, but he suggested that, that even if we can only do a small amount uh, to help with this, uh, that could still be one of the most important things uh, that we could work on. Uh, and that had been more commonplace uh, back in the days of uh, the Cold War, uh, when a lot of uh, scientists went to work on uh, av- you know, avoiding nuclear war uh, with the Soviet Union. Uh, but it had kind of fallen off um, discussion. Uh, and uh, actually, li- like Nick, um, I'm very optimistic about the future. And it's precisely this optimism that, that humanity, um, you know, for all of the 10,000 generations we've had so far, could still be really at the beginning of something quite extraordinary, and that we could have a fantastic future if only we can make it that long. Uh, but that we're at the moment, we're at this period of, uh, of quite high risk um, and so it's our—it's really this optimism about the future uh, that that motivates me to to work on these risks. Uh, so I don't find it so gloomy. It's not that I was kind of driven towards uh, uh, something uh, dark and depressing, but rather it, it, it's this obstacle between us and a really bright future. And can you describe what those obstacles look like in more detail? Like, how would you define an existential risk? What puts it in that category versus something that might just be catastrophic or, you know, tragic. Yeah, the, the idea is that, um, that if you think about human extinction, uh, that it has this really important property, which is that uh, if humanity were to go extinct, uh, it wouldn't merely 
be the, the deaths of, uh, of all 7 billion people alive today, but it would cut off our entire future. Um, there's this clear irreversibility about it. Um, uh, it destroys not just our present, but our future. Um, and there, there will be no way back from it. And this uh, creates a whole host of really uh, challenging issues around dealing with these risks. And it also explains why it is that this could be so bad. Um, uh, now, extinction isn't the only thing like this. And this is what, uh, what Nick Bostrom's uh, big insight was uh, in thinking about this broader category of existential risk. You could imagine, for example, something that causes a complete collapse of civilization uh, from which there's no way back um, and we can never recover um, civilization, in which case uh, humanity would be leading a very impoverished life uh, from then on. Uh, for example, if it were possible to destroy our climate so much that, that you know, we couldn't rebuild agriculture and, and, uh, and the other trappings of civilization. Or another example would be if there was a totalitarian regime um, which was uh, inescapable and terrible, um, such that the kind of point of no return, instead of it being the moment of extinction, would be the moment in which this regime um, you know, achieved its full control over the future. Uh, all of these things have, have a lot in common, and it's really worth dealing with them uh, as the same kind of idea. Uh, they, they wouldn't be a mere dark age in humanity's story, but really the, the pivotal moment of the story. And what's the timeline look for this? I know from what I've read and seen so far, it seems you really root all of these notions of the existential risk and the beginning of the creation of the nuclear bomb, really, um, I would say the last 70 years or so. What's that evolution from nuclear to now look like and moving forward? How, how, do, how has this evolved as a, a thing that we now need to really be concerned about? We've always been subject to, to some risks of uh, extinction or, or perhaps an unrecoverable collapse uh, from natural causes. Uh, so for example, asteroid impacts or supervolcanic eruptions. But uh, we know that, that there mustn't be all that much risk. Even though we, you know, we're constantly finding uh, new things such as gamma ray bursts you know, around distant stars uh, that could potentially uh, do us in, uh, we know that, that humanity has survived 10,000 centuries, uh, sorry, uh, 10,000 generations um, or about 2,000 centuries uh, so far. Um, and so the risk per century can't really be much higher than about one in a thousand or the chance of surviving uh, for this many centuries, you know, just becomes very small. Um, so we can bound the, all of the natural risk to some really quite low level. However, um, when we got to the point of uh, nuclear weapons, uh, we reached this moment where humanity's uh, escalating power uh, had finally reached the point where we could potentially pose a threat uh, to all of humanity. Uh, and this, uh, this was a kind of new era, uh, which I call the precipice, uh, where the, the risk that we face, the existential risk, uh, is now higher um, than this background level. And I think it's also increasing uh, over time. Um, such that uh, I, you know, I put the, the level of risk over the next 100 years at about one in six. Uh, and if I'm even roughly right about that, then humanity couldn't sustain many more centuries with risk levels like this. Either we would, uh, we would uh, uh, you know, go extinct or suffer some other kind of existential catastrophe, or um, we get our act together and we, we stop this trend and we lower the levels of risk down to um, a small and diminishing level. Um, so I think one way or the other, one of those things has to happen. Uh, so nuclear weapons is what I would put as the, the first uh, big existential risk. Uh, and then I think that's, that's been followed by uh, climate change as another uh, potential existential risk. Uh, I should say in both cases, it's somewhat unclear whether uh, whether they would actually be able to cause our extinction or a permanent collapse of civilization. It may be that the very worst nuclear wars or the very worst climate change is instead more of what I called a dark age for humanity. So still, still something that by any normal standards is absolutely catastrophically bad. I just want to be, want to be clear about that and well worth um, investing in and uh, you know going to a lot of effort to avoid uh, on its own. But 
I'm particularly interested in risks that would have this, this special consequences that you could never survive having had one happen. And this creates unique methodological challenges and, and unique kinds of importance about these risks. And so it's still a bit unclear whether um, either climate or nuclear exactly rise to that level. Uh, but I think that there's a very, a very serious um, chance that they do. Um, and the climate has this other uh, somewhat confusing property, which is that it may be that, uh, that the damages get locked in substantially in advance of the actual catastrophe happening. So in some sense, uh, when I say climate was the next one, I'm talking in terms of uh, the damages starting to get locked in already um, and the technologies that cause the damage already existing. Uh, but there are other risks uh, coming up, uh, such as risks from engineered pandemics and also I think risks arising from artificial intelligence where even though the technologies are not quite with us yet, uh, the, the risks may strike sooner um, than, than when the climate catastrophes would really be happening. Did this current pandemic strike you as a particularly timely given the writing of this book? Well, yeah, the, the pandemic struck um, just as the, the book was coming out. Uh, all, all of my uh, text for the book was locked in about six months earlier. Um, so, you know, I, I couldn't do anything to, uh, to adjust it, uh, but, but luckily I didn't really need to do so, uh, as I think that uh, the, the section on pandemics, um, uh, if anything, does look quite prescient. Uh, and I think that the, it's interesting in terms of how this pandemic has shaped existential risk. I think that it has, the, a silver lining of the pandemic has been a kind of waking us up to the fact that uh, humanity is still vulnerable to these big risks. Uh, and that th there's some aspect where even I suffered from this as well, where you hear experts you know, discuss the probabilities of, of a global pandemic killing um, millions or, or even billions of people within the next you know, time period. And you take that, you can take that seriously and you know, write it down and remember these numbers and, and have some idea about it. But there's something different, something quite visceral um, when you actually see it happen. I, th I think that there's some kind of cognitive bias or, or something that's, that we tend to be a bit dismissive or disbelieving that there could be global events which are bigger than any that we've seen in our lifetimes. Uh, and so for those of us um, you know, who weren't alive during uh, World War II, um, there's a kind of, you know, a limit to how bad anything we've experienced before has been, um, which, which makes it take a bit longer before you wake up to these things. And I think that that ceiling has at least been raised quite a lot um, by, uh, by COVID-19. Uh, and also, uh, it's going to, well, in the same way that, uh, that COVID creates a kind of immune response uh, for an individual, um, which kind of protects them from being infected again uh, for some period of time after being infected the first time. I think that there's also a kind of social immune response where uh, humanity suffering so badly um, from this pandemic uh, is going to mean that there will be a period of you know, maybe five years where there's, there's going to be a lot of call for action on protecting ourselves from the next risk like this. Uh, and in doing so, it may be that the silver lining of COVID is that it actually helps you know, alert us um, uh, and be willing to invest more in protecting against uh, existential risk, particularly bio-risks. Which, yeah, biotech and AI, I believe, are what you consider the, the biggest concerns in terms of existential risk. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And what is it about um, let's let's lead with biotech since we're already kind of focusing on a biological aspect here. What is it about biotech that concerns you so much? Yeah, um, it's uh, it's chiefly uh, the ability to uh, to create and to improve uh, pathogens, um, transmissible pathogens. Uh, so. Uh, there has been a line of research um, by well-meaning scientists uh, called gain-of-function research, where people take uh, an existing pathogen of concern, uh, such as um, a, a famous example was taking a form of H5N1 uh, bird flu. Um, and this is a, a, a very deadly form of influenza. It kills more than half the people it infects, uh, but was not transmissible between mammals. Um, so we had the situation where it was incredibly deadly, but not that transmissible. You had to catch it from birds. Uh, and uh, a researcher 
uh, did an experiment in the Netherlands uh, where he passed it um, successively uh, through, uh, through 10 ferrets. Uh, and the idea was to kind of grind up some material from the previous ferret and, and, um, and put it into the next one uh, until the, uh, the virus had been able to adapt to this mammalian uh, system. And in the end, uh, created a, a virus, a version of H5N1 that was directly transmissible between ferrets. Now, the idea here was, uh, was somewhat noble, was to work out what mutations would be needed, how hard would they be, and thus how close were we to, to accidentally, you know, finding um, just through natural causes, a version of uh, bird flu that could infect um, human to human. Uh, but in doing so, it also created this risk uh, that this new uh, virus that was worse than, than anything out there, uh, that it might escape the lab. And there have been many examples of, of lab escapes of dangerous pathogens. Uh, so that's one kind of concern, is well-meaning people creating um, these, this gain-of-function research and creating these new pathogens that are either more deadly or more transmissible than the previous ones, or perhaps in some cases more, um, uh, more resistant to vaccines or antibiotics. Um, there's also possibilities of uh, more directly uh, nefarious work. Uh, so uh, I'm also, in fact, even more concerned about uh, bioterrorism or biowarfare, um, where people uh, just deliberately try to create like, things like this and then release them. Uh, this is an area where we've got uh, tremendous improvements in biotechnology. You know, we're at the, a real boom time in terms of biotech. And uh, this, this really could be the century of, of biology. Uh, but the, the downside of this is that the rapid democratization of biotechnology is also a form of rapid proliferation. And if we take some of the, the biggest breakthroughs in biotech of recent times, uh, such as uh, CRISPR and, um, and gene drives, in both cases, uh, within, I think it was, it was a, I th at most two years of uh, of these techniques being first used, um, I think it may have even been within one year, uh, they were being replicated um, within science contests um, by, uh, by students uh, at university. So you have this situation where one year, uh, no one can, uh, can use this kind of new advanced technology. The next year, only the very brightest person in the world uh, and their elite team can do it. And then a year after that, all of a sudden, uh, there are students who can do it, and the, the pool of people, you know, is expanding very rapidly, and that's great uh, when when they're doing good things with it, which is most of the time. But it does mean that the chance that you encounter someone who has um, some very um, uh, pathological psychology um, does increase, and eventually, as this thing grows, you're going to encounter such people, and they're going to try to do very bad things with it. Yeah, I'm just thinking as you're saying this, I can't imagine how any kind of regulatory body <clears throat> could respond to something in a two-year window span in terms of it going from, you know, cutting edge to fully democratized. I, I, how do you, I mean, do you have any thoughts on how you could even begin to push back against that rapid pace of, of change? Well, it's, it's a good question. It's extremely difficult um, in, in large part because um, most of the benefits, you know, most of the effects of this at the moment are benefits. Uh, so you've got this, this ultimately very good seeming um, uh, democratization of the technology. Uh, and uh, it's hard to get all excited about that as a concern, um, even though the, the small chance, uh, small but growing chance that someone uses it for a rare but extremely bad outcome um, could end up having um, you know, more, more negative effects than the actual positive effects. I think that's, that's unclear and no one really knows. Um, but it, that, that confusion and, and, you know, dual use aspect of it um, does make it very hard. Uh, in addition, uh, you've got groups like um, uh, the Civil Contingency Secretariat uh, in the UK who produce the, the risk register for the UK. And uh, this is generally a, a pretty good exercise where they, they scan the horizon and try to work out what are the, the risks that we face, how likely are they, and how, how high impact would they be. Uh, but recently, they've restricted the horizon for that to two years, um, you know, the number you mentioned. Um, and so in that case, they're not willing to consider risks that couldn't really happen in the next two years. 
but if you rule out risks that can't really happen in the next two years, um, then any risk that would take more than two years to prepare for, um, you know, uh, you, you're going to be unprepared for uh, when, it, when it comes up. Uh, but I think some of these things are going to take a lot longer than two years to try to um, prepare for. Uh, I think that when it comes to biotechnology, I think ultimately one of the answers is going to have to be a, um, a I don't know how to put it exactly, some kind of um, sobering up of the uh, the biotechnology community. Not that there aren't people who are very sober already, um, but what I'm thinking of is an analogy to the, um, the atomic physics community um, when it came to nuclear weapons, where uh, ultimately, um, you know, in 1945, after Hiroshima, uh, they knew sin, um, and they really felt it. Um, you know, many people in the community had been working on developing the weapons that that caused this sheer destruction, and that could threaten even greater destruction in the future. And they really felt that they needed to do something about it. Um, and uh, this this gave them a, a real sense of social obligation. Uh, but on top of that, there was also a, a secrecy um, that, that developed where it was considered um, just a, a part of doing business in atomic physics at that point, that if you came up with some new breakthrough about uh, fissile material, say, um, that you couldn't just publish it. Um, uh, in universities, you know, we generally have this, this strong push towards academic freedom and towards uh, getting ideas out there. Um, and generally, it's a really great thing uh, that, that we do have that. Uh, but it does run into problems once you reach um, potentially very dangerous technologies. And it, it may be that, uh, uh, that people in uh, biotechnology will have to, in the future, act a bit more like people in the physics community, or you know, in atomic physics in particular, where they just have to accept that, um, that they don't have a, a fundamental right to publish anything that they come up with as soon as they want. Um, as an example of something like that, uh, less this sounds like too much of an overreaction, uh, people have published a, a lot of stuff that has been very dangerous. Um, and one example is, uh, um, you know, publishing the, the smallpox genome. Um, so uh, anyone can go on the internet and download the DNA code for smallpox. Um, luckily, the, you know, the DNA fabricators uh, that will uh, produce DNA to order, uh, you know, they search for this string of, of, um, of base pairs and will block it. Uh, but if someone had a fabricator that, that didn't have, you know, those limitations put into it, you know, that, then it could produce uh, DNA that, uh, um, of smallpox. There are still additional steps before that someone could actually do damage with that. But, it, you know, they've removed one of the massive steps. Um, at, at the end of smallpox eradication, uh, all smallpox stocks uh, in the whole world were destroyed, except for a very well-guarded stocks um, in the Soviet Union at Vector and in the U.S. at the Center for Disease Control. But all of the good work of limiting those things and putting them under lock and key and needing special security clearances to go anywhere near them was all undone uh, by the person who decided to publish the entire genome online. Yeah, and you hit on something there that I think is really interesting. And I'm not sure if this is out of scope for you, but what role does the multicultural landscape play in this in the sense that, you know, I, you know, in China, there was, I believe, the guy who used CRISPR to create the uh, HIV resistant uh, twins. But you know, it's like there's an unregulated body there in China or a body that is um, empowered by the government, whereas we might be restrictive here in the United States. But that doesn't, our restrictions in the United States doesn't stop China from pushing forward. So there, it seems there has to be a lot of multicultural communication for us to make yeah. this work. And I, I feel like we're maybe not there. I think that that's right. Um, otherwise, you can get an effect where we're only as safe as uh, as the least safe country, um, and uh, this can go both ways. Um, there, there's you know there are various aspects of research which are less regulated uh, in China, um, where we've regulated them due to ethics concerns of various forms. Uh, but by the same token, um, there are there are things that are in some ways less regulated here um, uh, because we think that people have freedom to do what they want in terms of scientific research, kind of, unless it's been very strongly demonstrated otherwise, um, that it would be, you know, actively dangerous, um, you know, a kind of clear and present danger. Uh, whereas in China, um, my, at least my educated guess would be that uh, more of those things would get blocked. Uh, so I think that, uh, that 
that there is good reason uh, to talk with people across the world and see how different cultures are dealing with this and see what challenges we're going to face. I do worry that, that, that um, there's going to be some situation somewhat akin um, to uh, with the physicists in Hiroshima, uh, where, where someone does make some um, engineered pandemic uh, and it causes a lot of death and destruction. And then uh, if uh, the biotech community kind of hasn't self-regulated sufficiently to avoid something like that, um, then they're probably going to get a lot of external regulation. Yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit about artificial intelligence and its role in terms of existential risk? Yeah. Um, I think AI risk is, is pretty complicated and uh, also very easily misunderstood. Uh, so I've certainly... Uh, seen a lot of colleagues try to put a really nuanced view uh, of this out there uh, to to journalists, and then the journalists write stories about the Terminator, um, and uh, and then infuriate uh, all of their their colleagues uh, who are actually practitioners in AI. Um, th this happens a lot, where uh, where the, the the nuanced concerns get turned into uh, into very unnuanced um, shouting in the media, uh, with with a lot of kind of you know some common mistakes are, for example, that it would involve necessarily involve robots if there was some kind of risk, or that it would involve them in some sense, turning on the humans out of some form of resentment or something like that. Uh, but if we look at AI, um, and we look, you know, at the, the long history of AI, uh, the original uh, intention was to try to create uh, thinking machines or, or programs uh, that can do the, the full range of intellectual thought um, that a human can do. They can do all the kind of cognitive things uh, that a human brain can. Uh, and in particular, they can, they can go about some environment um, trying to fulfill um, their, their aims and preferences um, and to do so very successfully. Um, and this is sometimes called now artificial general intelligence uh, to distinguish it from the more narrow approaches where, um, you know, where in some cases AI has been synonymous with something like search or, you know, or playing a very particular game, um, such as the game of chess, uh, rather than being able to play all possible games that are given to it as visual you know, stimulus or something like that. Um, so a good example of uh, AGI um, or you know, some early system in this direction uh, might be uh, DeepMind's um, DQN uh, program, uh, which was a, a you know, pivotal example of deep reinforcement learning, where uh, a neural network was trained to be able to play each of more than 50 different Atari games uh, just from the raw pixels uh, and to, to play many of them uh, at a level exceeding that of a human. Um, the, that original system actually was training a large number of narrow agents because it was a different neural network that was trained up for each game, uh, but from the same starting parameters. Uh, but over time, you know, they've also worked out how to make systems where a single system, um, you know, a single neural network can be trained to play all of these games, um, depending on whichever one it encounters. Um, and uh, GPT-3 uh, is another good example of some general intelligence, uh, a system that uh, can take textual prompts and then continue them as if that was, you know, in the most likely manner uh, that based on what it would see in its very large data set of, uh, of text on the internet. So for example, if it's given the start of a bit of fanfic, uh, it can kind of continue this uh, fan fiction story, um, in, even drawing on, you know, the names of characters in Tolkien or something like that, because it's seen so many of these things in its corpus. And in fact, the fact that it produces a quite bad fanfic uh, may just be because that's that's the most likely thing it encounters on the internet, and so it's the best answer to the question of what would be the most likely continuation of this of this fanfiction prompt. Um, but it's a it's a system that uh, can write about you know this this dazzling array of different subjects, uh, including doing literary parodies. Um, if you ask it to um, uh, to start with a sentence and then to uh, continue it um, in the style of uh, a famous uh, author or a famous poet. Um, it actually does uh, surprisingly well at that, uh, better than I could do. Um, so the, these are kind of general intelligence systems. So then uh, the, the type of concern uh, that people like uh, Nick Bostrom and Stuart Russell um, have articulated is that if you have a reinforcement learning system like this, um, imagine something like the Atari system uh, that um, is trying to maximize 
um, the the sum of rewards it gets over time, like the, the kind of the sum of the points it gets over time. If such a system was operating in the real world, uh, then uh, it would end up developing um, an instrumental desire to stay alive. Um, uh, even if there was no emotion or drive kind of directly programmed into it to say that you've got a, you know, an urge to stay alive, uh, that would just come out of um, the, you know, solving the mathematical problem of how do I maximize the number of points I get? Well, if I'm turned off, I can't get any more points. So, um, so I have to try to avoid being turned off. Uh, and if it understood enough about humans um, to, to kind of count as being as intelligent as a human, uh, then it would also, presumably, unless we very carefully hid this information from it, it would become aware that uh, that uh, in certain circumstances, based on what it does, humans would be more or less likely to turn it off. Um, and so it would start to, uh, to reason about this and to act in ways uh, that try to increase uh, its chance that it will be kept on and to increase the power that it has over the world in order to, to get more points or reward. Um, so this is the, the kind of concern. Um, if that system were only as intelligent as a human, um, then it may not be able to do much more than a, a, um, a dangerous human could do. Uh, but the concern is particularly if we had a, a system that was vastly more intelligent than a human. Uh, and when uh, AI practitioners have been surveyed on the question of when will we develop AI systems that can do um, pretty much all of the intellectual work that a human can do, uh, in a recent survey on that, uh, the median uh, estimate for, for that time uh, was, I think it was uh, about 2050. Uh, so they're, they're suggesting that this isn't just a total pipe dream. It's the type of thing that we're as likely as not to see, you know, uh, in the next uh, few decades. Uh, and uh, so that, that would be a big deal uh, if we reached the point where there were systems, you know, as intelligent as a human, and perhaps it wouldn't take long before there were systems that were vastly more intelligent, and these could create a lot of additional risk. So that, that's the basic sketch of this. Coming from your ethics background, I'm curious if you think the AI would be developing ethics of their own, or if they would be adopting human ethics? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I've thought about this a lot, and uh, it's it's quite tricky to, to, to tease out different versions of, of what could be going on there. And then also it's tricky again to try to work out which ones are likely to happen. So here's, here's an example. Um, uh, some people, I think including uh, P uh, Steven Pinker, have, uh, have expressed a lot of skepticism about this concern that AI could cause an existential risk. And one of the arguments that's been put forward is this. Uh, why would a system that's more intelligent than any human, why would such a system uh, not actually understand what it is we really want? You know, why would it kind of maximize some kind of narrowly defined score function, um, you know, at the expense of what humans actually care about? Um, you know, wh why would it be so short-sighted? Um, and I think that the, the correct answer to that skepticism is to say, well, such a system that is really intelligent would understand what humans want. Um, and in fact, that's why it would attempt to protect itself from humans um, and why it would develop these kind of instrumental uh, reasons for um, trying to free itself from human control um, because it, it thinks the humans would not like what it's trying to do. Um, so it would understand that humans don't want these things, but that doesn't change the fact that these are the things that would maximize its score. Um, so I think that uh, that if we kind of imagine what a reinforcement learning system that was very intelligent would do, uh, I think that the the most likely thing uh, is something like this, where it would it would recognize um, a whole lot about the shape of human preferences, but it just wouldn't care about it. It would uh, it would treat that as these are the preferences of these overseers um, who I have no intrinsic interest in. All I'm trying to do is maximize this score. Now the score might be what the humans thought would be, you know, fulfilling a good ethical duty for an AI system, um, but there's this kind of disconnect between the two. One of them is directly programmed into the system, and that's the thing it cares about, um, whereas the other thing is just what it thinks humans care about. Uh, there could be some clever ways of trying to get the system um, that once it, such that once it understands what the humans really want, that concept gets directly tied into what it's trying to maximize. Um, 
uh, such that if it understands, you know, human ethical values or even just human self-interested values, uh, then it can at least try to, you know, create more value for humans. Um, but that's something where uh, we don't yet know how to do that. Um, so that's one of the one of the hopes uh, for how we can align uh, AI systems with human values. Uh, and so to, to get back directly to what you were asking, when the AI systems are trying to make sense of these other agents, the human agents in the world, uh, they may well, uh, like, like we do, uh, divide up um, the human's aims into self-regarding aims um, and also some other component of kind of other regarding aims, uh, the types of things we normally call ethics. Uh, so they may well be able to work out uh, that um, you know, that this human, you know, here's what it wants. It, you know, it wants to become happier or it wants to, you know, eat this food or something, but here's what it is going to do. Um, it's not going to steal the thing that would have, you know, would have made it happy if it stole it and then ate it uh, because it has this extra framework of, of, um, of preferences around it. Um, so it may well be that in order to really understand and potentially manipulate humans, it has to understand uh, that humans have these ethical codes uh, but the trick is how do we make it actually care about that rather than just treat it as a, a brute fact about the world to be worked around. There's a lot of interesting stuff in that. Um, <laughs> I'll save that for another time. Uh, one one thing that I find really interesting is that you have said that the one in six chance of <clears throat> existential catastrophe, I guess, um, that you've you've listed that 15% chance or so is actually only that low because of how optimistic you are. You think that that's actually uh, the reason that that's uh, even that low is that you think humanity is going to really step up and address these issues over the coming centuries. How do you think that that's going to happen? Do you think that there's going to be something where maybe AI will, as you were saying, get to know us better and maybe by learning our behavior will actually help us learn our own behavior? Will automation change things? Have you, have you given much thought to how we will actually address these issues to get us to that one in 6%? Yeah, well, to start with, I should say, you know, <laughs> this is really difficult stuff to, to know or to, to estimate. Uh, so these, these numbers that I'm trying to put on things are, are perhaps the best way to think of them is if, if people want to know what I think, you know, what, what does Toby Ord believe about this topic? You know, he says it's really important and it's a really big threat. Is he talking one in a thousand or is he talking, you know, one in 10? And so I, I give the numbers in order to try to give the ballpark. Um, but, but I, you know, I don't by any means suggest that everyone should be compelled towards the same numbers by, by my arguments. Um, and my kind of very rough guess is something like if you had a business as usual situation where you just let these risks keep growing um, at the kind of rate that they had been growing, and you look at the types of technologies that could potentially cause these existential dangers for humanity over the century, then my best guess would be something like a one in three chance that we don't make it uh, through the century before we succumb to such a catastrophe. But I think that, um, you know, instead I say one in six, because I think that uh, that we will at least um, become aware of some of these concerns. Um, so for example, with uh, the risks that could arise from AI, I think that there's been great progress on that um, in terms of uh, trying to uh, articulate the, what the risks are, um, to, to convince um, some key figures in AI about these risks. And you know, we've got people uh, like uh, Stuart Russell now that, that you hear from. It's not just people around the edges who are who are um, expressing these concerns, but people who have a kind of central and important reputation in the field. Uh, similarly, the the uh, the founders of DeepMind have you know expressed a lot of concern about uh, the, the possibility of uh, existential risk from AI, and you know and take that seriously. So we it's not one of these cases where there's just a few people uh, you know who one could point to and say that they're not experts on AI um, uh, who have these concerns, uh, and that uh, that. Uh, you know, Stuart Russell now has a lab of people um, uh, working on AI safety and similarly at DeepMind and at OpenAI. Uh, so we're in a world where this is increasingly being taken seriously. Now, it, unfortunately, the, the community working on these things haven't found um, uh, fantastic solutions yet. Um, so that's, that's a downside. Uh, but but I do think it's the type of thing where it's it's got some purchase and people are taking the issue seriously. And in general, I think that that uh, one reason to be optimistic is that there is a 
a kind of common interest of humanity here. Um, we're often, uh, we often focus on those cases where our values disagree with each other uh, because they're the kind of interesting cases of conflict. Um, so cases where a Democrat disagrees with a Republican or, or where someone from the West disagrees with someone from the East. Um, in cases where, where almost all people agree with each other, we tend not to talk about those things, um, such as that uh, having a happy life is better than having an unhappy life or having a longer happy life is better than a shorter happy life or, or things like that. Um, so I think that when it comes to existential risk, uh, this is something that is really in all of our interests to avoid. Um, and I think that the arguments are actually pretty strong that, uh, that there are serious risks this century, even if it's very debatable exactly how large they are. Uh, and also that it's, uh, it's of central moral importance um, to protect uh, humanity's long-term future. Uh, so I think there's a lot of reason to, to get on the same page and to, to reach some common agreement that this is a concern. Then the issues that are, remain um, are to do with things like uh, how do we actually coordinate with each other, particularly at the international level? Um, do we end up in a, in a kind of prisoner's dilemma or a tragedy of the commons uh, where even though it's in everyone's interest to do a certain, you know, it's in the world's interest if the world moves in a certain direction, maybe it's in our individual interests um, to cut corners and take risks uh, because then we reap all the rewards um, but we only reap, you know, a small share of the risks. Um, so there could be some, some concerns like that. But generally, I, the the type of thing that makes me optimistic is that there's this kind of common, um, uh, common interest in getting the the outcome right. The, you know, the very fact that it's not very controversial to say that it would be much better if we uh, if we didn't uh, destroy humanity's future, uh, is the kind of thing that gives me hope. Yeah, and to your earlier point, I think <clears throat> the pandemic kind of makes me optimistic because I can see how the international community has had to come together to rally around one problem. And maybe we've started that groundwork uh, that we need. Yeah, I, I would say on that, that the, um, in terms of what we saw with the, the pandemic there, um, the international science and technology community um, uh, you know, were reason for optimism. The international political community is perhaps reason for a bit more pessimism. Maybe it depends on where you started on that. If you were, if you were extremely cynical to begin with, maybe this is just what you expected. Uh, I was a bit more optimistic about nations being able to work together um, uh, on these things. Yeah, <clears throat> on that point, uh, we're coming up soon on the hour here, and I was wondering if you could or would be willing to take some questions from our community that they asked uh, when they found out. That Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into one here that I think is really relevant to what we were just discussing. Um, Dr. Riaz Bangi, uh, I'm paraphrasing their question a bit here, but they said, mm -hmm. uh, altruistic intellectuals have long been concerned about existential risk, but there is no political will backing up these concerns. What do you think will finally bring about the political courage to take these issues more seriously? Well, I guess I would I would partly dispute that there's that we're, there's long been this concern. Depends depends on what time frame um, uh, they're thinking, uh, but ultimately uh, it's only really since uh, uh, the development of the atomic bomb, so seventy five years ago, uh, that uh, we've really seen much concern about existential risk. Um, and the idea itself wasn't even really around at all, um, you know, more than a hundred or so years ago. Uh, there, there's a very good uh, book on the intellectual history of the idea, um, just called X Risk uh, by Thomas Moynihan. Uh, but you might still think 75 years is a long time, um, but it's actually, it's only a couple of generations. And uh, we only really established that existential risk could come from nuclear weapons when we discovered nuclear winter in 1983. And then the Cold War ended uh, less than a decade later. So we just had you know, less than a decade of Cold War where we really understood that there was an existential risk. Um, and it takes quite a while for, for moral um, norms uh, to move. Uh, and so I think this is a case where we do have some things to, to get optimism from. Uh, so for example, when it came to environmentalism, uh, caring about the environment just really wasn't considered part of ethics at all um, you know, up until about uh, 1960. Uh, and then in a very short period of time, uh, there was massive uh, mobilized concern about this. And uh, within a, a decade of uh, Silent Spring coming out, 
uh, all English-speaking countries, except I think New Zealand, um, had a new ministry created within government um, uh, for the environment. Uh, so that's kind of a, a pretty extreme example. Um, obviously, environmental issues are not all solved now. It's not that this has solved everything. Um, but it does show that you can have quite rapid uh, progress if there's some kind of crystallization of this. Uh, so uh, it could be that, the, uh, that this pandemic will help to cause such a, a crystallization or perhaps some other near-miss uh, type scenario warning shot um, that, that happens in the, in the near future. Um, I'm hoping it could happen even without that. Um, just once you know, we really get this conversation about existential risk, this kind of mature conversation rolling. Um, so uh, hopefully, if uh, you know, if people hear this and they're interested, and we we all kind of work together to uh, uh, to to start up this public conversation, uh, then we can get there without having had to have uh, some kind of warning shot. To continue that, we have another good question here to follow up from Guy Morris, and he's wondering if there are any organizations that you think currently carry enough influence um, that could help impact true meaningful change in this regard. Are there any organizations that you you think are doing a great job of handling this right now? Yeah, a, a couple that I think are doing um, doing good job um, uh, would include uh, uh, NTI, uh, the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Um, uh, they're obviously focused on nuclear weapons, but they're expanding that interest uh, to to other um, uh, global catastrophic or existential risks. Uh, and also uh, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Um, you know that's a group that started um, just after World War II, and uh, and channeled a lot of the energy of uh, of uh, physicists and now also biologists and others um, to really uh, really try to you know get policy effects um, on uh, on issues of existential risk. Uh, so so there are there are a couple of groups that have that have been going for quite a long time because they started with this this first big uh, existential risk, and uh, I think that that. Uh, there certainly is not that all politicians, you know, have to do what they say, uh, but uh, it's it's somewhat promising as a as a sign. Let's do one here from Marion Rosner. Um, she's wondering what your perspective is on the role of social inequity and existential risk. How are the social aspects playing into this? It's a, it's a good question, um, and I'm not sure. Um, I I don't think that there is a huge connection um, between um, social inequalities and existential risk. That's not to say that social inequalities aren't extremely bad, um, but rather that it seems to me to be a, a fairly separable conversation um, uh, where the, the work to address one has relatively less impact on addressing the other compared to, you know, to issues which are more closely entwined. Um, one way that, that I could see it um, uh, starting to have some effects would be at the uh, the international level, uh, such as the the questions about climate change and who has the responsibility for doing something about that, um, and debates between uh, poor countries and rich countries, where the rich countries, you know, were uh, historically responsible for a lot more of the damages, uh, but then the new rules that would restrict um, emissions uh, would pot potentially stop the poor countries, um, you know, really going through the industrial revolution in their own countries. Um, so that's an example where something like this could happen, uh, where you could get a lot of resentment. Uh, if rich countries wake up to these threats uh, before poor countries do, uh, it might be considered, you know, this kind of uh, preserve of people who are uh, wealthy and protected enough from, from normal things that they've got the luxury of thinking about these other things. I could imagine some, some, uh, some kind of challenge along those grounds. And we'll just do one more here from uh, David Satterley. Uh, he's wondering if you could speak to the balancing risk or to balancing risk and development between decentralized personal control and the vulnerabilities of a centralized system. So I think what he's wondering there is <clears throat> where the power struck, how the power is distributed and what that means in terms of risk. Yeah, um, I think it, it would depend quite a lot on the particular risks. Uh, I don't have uh, an overall theory of this. Um, if you look at something like uh, nuclear weapons, uh, there's a kind of interesting mix of these things. It's generally been quite centralized, um, certainly within states, um, that a state has control of its nuclear weapons um, and that it's not, uh, you know, the central kind of command and control structure. Um, that may well uh, be a good thing um, when it comes to that. Um, uh, seems like it to me. 
Um, and in the case of, uh, of bio, biotech, um, the general approach, we have not yet had a big centralization like that. So lots of individual groups and labs are able to kind of do what they want. And they may have different judgments about which things, which risks are worth running. And then maybe we end up, um, you know, some of those judgments about which risks are worth taking are, are more optimistic than others. And we end up with something called the unilateralist curse, where uh, um, whoever had the most overly rosy view of uh, of of the risks to reward ratio uh, ends up pushing forward with something um, uh, instead of the the person who had the middle kind of you know the median guess on this. Um, so that that would be a, a form of concern about a decentralized system, uh, but uh, you know in general I, I don't think that centralizing is a panacea. Um, I think that that you know the, the the questioner is correct that there are a different set of problems that happen there, uh, and I, I'm sorry I can't uh, you know. Uh, you know, try. You don't know how to resolve it at this kind of more general level. Sure, I'll follow up that real quickly with just a, a thought. Um, do you worry about inhibiting innovation at the cost of preventing risk, or do you think that the innovation could um, outpace the risk? Do you, like what's that relationship look like to you? It's it's a good yeah another good question. I mean, I I am concerned about this, and I I think that. Uh, that this is going to be a real challenge. Um, that uh, to some extent, uh, I think that unbridled innovation—just let anyone do whatever they want um, and you know invent any technology they want um, that, that's profitable, um, or that perhaps you know that a country wants and then leads that country to be able to take power, you know, seize power from others. I think that just unbridled innovation is is probably not the the right approach. Um, but once you try to strike some balance, uh, it's tricky, and there are going to be cases where, um, where you get it wrong, and uh, including cases where you, uh, you know, it has more of a, a restrictive effect than it should, um, because you're, you're concerned that there was a risk in some area, and it turned out actually that there wasn't. Uh, so I do think that um, balancing that's going to be difficult, um, and there's going to be, you know, people on both sides who get quite put out because they, their judgment about where the balance of risk lies differs with each other. Even if we're all earnest and well-meaning, um, it's going to be a, a t tricky one to uh, to navigate. Perfect, and I think at that we'll uh, we'll call it there. Toby, I really want to thank you for taking the time. Oh, no problem. It's been really great to to speak to you, and uh, I really enjoyed these questions. And now we're going to take a moment for a short message about our membership for organizations, which you can find by going to su.org and clicking organizations in the menu. Singularity Group was founded upon the belief that the world's biggest problems represent the world's biggest opportunities. Our mission remains unchanged, but our methods have evolved exponentially. Today, we're opening doors around the world as a digital first organization. We invite future thinking companies to join Singularity Group to learn about the breadth of exponential technologies, to empower your organization with an abundance mindset, and to grow networks that can create solutions to humanity's greatest challenges. With an unprecedented year behind us and many great challenges ahead, leaders across the globe are wrestling with the future, how to embrace change, stay ahead of trends, and build sustainable businesses. We help entrepreneurial leaders better understand how exponential technologies can be applied in their companies to advance their goals for people, planet, profit, and purpose. And it all starts with the mindset, the skill set, and the network. Together, let's discuss how membership can turn you and your leaders into exponential thinkers and prepare for an abundant future for all. Together, we can impact a billion people.